let us look uh, at first at the timeline here. Uh, you've, got, you've got the whole kind of Lutherscape here, right? 1483, he's born, and then by the year 15, if you go all the way on down here to 1546, Luther dies. And look at what happens in 1547. Now, because of Luther's death, the emperor, Charles V, is going to gather his forces and he's going to destroy. It isn't just for him, it isn't just a matter of a theological destruction of Lutheranism, but Lutheranism was tearing, if you will, the empire apart because it was dividing these northern countries from the southern countries, and he had to destroy Lutheranism uh, along with those princes and such that had become Lutheran. So there's, a, there's some skirmishes, and the Lutheran uh, elector makes a big mistake, and his forces are conquered. Uh, this guy named Maurice, Duke of Saxony. Anybody here named Maurice? Middle name? You can see why it is that Lutherans don't embrace this name. He was called the Judas of Meissen. He was a, a duke that wanted to basically take over his uncle's territories. His uncle was an elector, and along with a guy named Philip of Hesse, he, he betrayed both John Friedrich, who was Luther's elector, and Philip of Hesse. They were imprisoned. And now, all of a sudden, the only place almost in all of Germany that really was capable of being able to resist this uh, force of the emperor was this wall fortress, this walled city, this immense city called Magdeburg. And there in Magdeburg, the Lutheran, many of the so-called ecta, the pure, the, the, um, the Genesio, the true Lutheran theologians went there. And then uh, Charles V tried to impose upon the lands that had become Lutheran basically a way of being able to get them to return back to being a Roman Catholic church. And what they found was that they could, they could get Lutherans to accept certain things, but they wouldn't accept everything. So neither the Lutherans, the true Lutherans, nor the Roman Catholics were happy with what they called the interim. And the first one was called the Augsburg Interim, and there, they basically, this guy named Philip Melanchthon, who had been Luther's kind of right-hand man in Wittenberg, he had, in the death of Luther, had kind of become the new leader, right? And Melanchthon was a humanist scholar, but he did not have kind of the theological moxie of Martin Luther. And so Melanchthon was a guy who was more of the accommodating guy, and, let, hey, let's get along, and let's make a few compromises. And if we make a few compromises, they'll be more content with us, and they won't take us over, and they won't kick us out, and they'll leave us in our place, and so on. So Melanchthon starts making concessions, like, for instance, in the liturgy, where they started bringing back these things that the Roman Catholics had done that Luther had excluded. And so the question, the very first, the very first debate, if you will, among Lutherans, was over the issue what they called adiaphora. Adiaphora means the things that are neither commanded nor forbidden. That is, in other words, anybody here who wants to wear red, 
can wear red. Anybody here who wants to wear purple could wear purple. Anybody here who wants to be able to drink coffee can drink coffee. Anybody here that wants to be able to have a beer for lunch can have a beer for lunch. These things are not for commanded, nor were they forbidden. Now the question is, in the liturgy, when Pastor Grady stands in front of you and he does this, does he have to, or is he free? Well, you might say, if it's a matter of doing this, or doing this, or not doing it all, is it forbidden or commanded in the scriptures? No, right? But if somebody comes along and says, you must or you will be sinning, what do Lutherans do? It'll be a cold day in hell before we're going to do what you tell us we have to do. That's why I went through Texas to learn how to talk like that. Yeah, the Lutherans, the Lutherans said, the minute that you bind a conscience, the minute that you say something is absolutely necessary for salvation or even for the conscience, that this is sin if you don't do this. I know there's a Pentecostal among us. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the, what, what we have to, what we, well, all of a sudden it changes things. And when the Genesio, the true Lutherans, these these Magdeburgian Lutherans saw these Melanchthonians saying, all right, yes, all right, we'll do this. But they're adiaphora things because it's not a matter of, we can still teach salvation by faith. They, the, the true Lutherans said, no, they're forcing you and telling you basically you have to and also now this is, you're, you're telling people that the minute that you go back to this, that you basically are on your road back to the theology of Roman Catholicism, which teaches that you're saved by your works, right? That was, a, that was the whole thing about the Reformation. So that just immediately became the first controversy. But also, with Luther kind of being gone and unifying everybody else, then there were other things. There were disciples of Luther that would take things that, you know, Luther was, Luther was a, well, now he was a, a real Texan. He could pull those guns and he would shoot with this gun and he would shoot with this gun and sometimes what it is that he said here had to be taken in the light of what it is that he said here. Because this was, sometimes he would make, I guess you might say, strong, if not even almost gross statements and then those things, if they were ever taken only, that only that thing was being said, sometimes they would take those things and they would some, somebody who was a disciple of his would take off with it and then he would end up in error and he would end up in false doctrine because he had emphasized that almost to the point of absurdity. So you, with Luther, what you had to do is you had to constantly be watching both sides of Luther as he talked about given issues. Now, there were people then who were disciples of Luther. There were people who were kind of disciples of Melanchthon. And there were guys that somehow, I guess, were disciples of themselves. And this eventually brought about regions and territories in Germany, throughout Germany, that started having differences over various doctrinal issues. 
and there needed to be clarity. And they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and they tried. And they, for some reason, just couldn't quite get it done. Until finally, a handful of theologians came together there in the Magdeburg area. They ended up going to a place, uh, a castle called Burga. And there it is, they sequestered them and they went to work on something that eventually became this formula of Concord. Now our group is gonna, hopefully, by the grace of God, stop at that castle on our way to a place called Braunschweig. Now we got a lot more history to deal with, but I wanna go after this subject of original sin. And we wanna talk about this because this became one of the issues that they had. If you take this sheet now, let's, I'll, read, I'll read the first paragraph and then let's all read the second paragraph. This comes from the Formula of Concord, FC, Solid Declaration, Article 1, Fascicle 6, Original Sin. And by Dr. Luther, it is called sin, nature sin or person sin, thereby to indicate that even though a person would think, speak, or do nothing evil, which, however, is impossible in this life since the fall of our first parents, his nature and person are nevertheless sinful, that is, thoroughly and utterly infected and corrupted by, before God by original sin, as by a spiritual leprosy. And on account of this corruption and because of the fall of the first man, the nature or person is accused or condemned by God's law so that we are by nature the children of wrath, death, and damnation unless we are delivered there from or by the merit of Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. If you and I lived a perfect life, life. You never coveted. You never lusted. You never were a person who said a bad word. You were never a person who ever felt jealous of anybody. You were a person who went to church every single Sunday at a Missouri Synod congregation. <laughs> Conservative, liturgically pure, theological conversation. If you are a person who never in your life ever failed to put down the Bible, you would still be utterly condemned and utterly forsaken by God. Now, of course, you couldn't do that unless something else happened. But the point is, is that we are by nature underneath this wrath and condemnation and this is something that later on the text is going to point this out. We can't know it. We have to ask God. What does God see in us? When we think of ourselves, we think of ourselves as what? That we're kind of like, we're kind of treading water. That sin is kind of like where it is that we just kind of, every once in a while take a gulp of seawater and then struggle back up to the top, and then we try to be able to do what's right, dog paddling, 
I, I was thinking about surfing when I was out there. Um, and then my son looked at me and said, you'll never learn to surf. I said, why? He said, you can't learn to surf in such a short period of time. And I said, well, it just looks so much fun. You get out there and go surfing, you know. How did I get on that? Well, all right, when we're talking about, about sin, it's like me surfing. You get on the board, you get off the board. That's how I see myself. I try my best, I go to church. I try my best, I ask for forgiveness. I try my best, I do this, I get mad, I get whatever. And that's how we think of sin. What we don't think of is that because of original sin, there is nothing that we do that is without sin. Even when we think we are doing good works, they're sinful because they are tainted with sin because of our corrupted original sin. Let's read the second paragraph. Together. Now this controversy concerning original sin is not unnecessary wrangling, but if this doctrine is rightly presented from and according to God's word and separated from all Pelagian and Manichaean errors, as the Apology says, the benefits of the Lord Christ and his precious merit, also the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit, and more extolled. Moreover, due honor is rendered to God if his work and creation in man is rightly distinguished from the work of the devil by which the nature has been corrupted. Yeah, now, now he said, why, why this distinction between the fact that God is our creator and then what the devil has done to our natures? What, why why, why were, there, were they so concerned about this? We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but think about this. What does God create? Does God ever create anything that's defective? Okay, now, so we say God created us, God made us. What is the so-called logical conclusion? That if we are sinful and God made us, that therefore God either made something that was corrupted or we're not as bad as we think. Right? And so, therefore, what do you have to do? You have to be able to say, no, what God has made, he makes, well, holy. But because of the fall into sin, something has come upon us, upon mankind, that is now the product of that demonic power that brought about the fall of humanity, and this is the work of the devil. So what God has given and what God has created is good, but it is under this influence this power of the devil and his uh, his horde um, well, well, but that's that's if you think about baptism you think baptism delivers from that power doesn't it yeah okay now let's look at number one the knowledge of original sin comes not from human experience but from scripture Fallen man cannot understand himself. You know, when I was out in, in San Francisco, 
We went to church in a local church there. I have to say, it, it wasn't a pretty sight. Um, churches empty, pretty much. The only, in a, in a desperate effort to keep the church alive, they had Joe the guitar player up there leading the hymns. The organ wasn't even used at all. And um, it was pretty, um, how would you say, casual to the point of almost not looking like church. And then we went downtown, and the streets were full of young people, handsome people, wealthy people with lots of hair. <laughs> Usually a sign of youth. And nobody even thought about whether or not, I mean, I, not to, I, mean, I couldn't read everybody's mind and it's an overstatement, but it's not a culture consciousness that they're going to die and that they're under the condemnation of sin and damnation and hell and that the only way to be saved is to come to a knowledge of who Christ is. And you think I'm going to go out there and start telling all those people that what they don't know is that they are under the wrath of God and that they would be lost forever unless delivered by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want to know what kind of reception I'd get? Well, you, you, if you think this is difficult, imagine today trying to be able to convince people that they need a Savior. Because we can start by pointing to what it is that they can't get together in their life. And you can talk about their fallenness, but most everybody judges themselves by comparison to somebody else. Yeah, you know, how bad am I? Well, we're not bad people. We're charitable. We're successful. Walking down the street with Christian, he's meeting his friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had a startup. He just sold it for $5 million. He's starting up another one. You think that those, you, the success is so great. That's a hard place to go. Maybe if I could go to the street people and say, you know, you probably blew at some point in your life. Don't you see that you're sinful? Even there. No. Why, why, why do we need to worry? How, what, how can you... Can I convince you from Scripture? Can I open up my Bible and read this to you? We must be a fanatic. How do we ever get this into anybody's mind? And we even have a problem even here in church on Sunday. I don't know about you, but... I know that when I come in, trying to be able to grasp the reality of my own fallen condition, but I have to in order to be able to see the beauty of God's grace. Somehow that gift of grace means nothing unless I understand this. Right? And so we live in a time, in an era, where we dare not bring to people's consciousness a reality of their condemnation. And for some strange reason, we can't get anybody to see the great joy and happiness and the reason for rejoicing and celebration that we do here as we worship God with his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. That's why they're saying original sin 
is a very important doctrine. Believing it is not the gospel, but it is a prelude to understanding and grasping the gospel. If you believe God here as a prelude, then you can also believe him here when he tells you that you're forgiven. So you have to also have something in order to be able to climb down those stairs. There has to be something of a conscience. And this is the reason why, go to, go to not just San Francisco, you know, by the way, I want to say, I think California might get a bad rap. Um, the coastal areas are extremely liberal, morally and everything else, but a lot of California is not, and a lot of people in California are not. We should, we should not necessarily cast, you know, paint them with all one color. Um, but, but in order to be able to live with conscience, um, the new social gospel is that you have to change the so-called public acceptance of sinful conduct and behavior. And you know what we're talking about. We're talking about things like homosexuality and marriage between people of the same sex and so on and so forth. These things have come to be commonly accepted in society, but the pressure to do so has a lot to do with the fact that it supposedly relieves the consciences of those who ordinarily would find themselves troubled by that sin. And we all have sin. Don't, don't ever think that there's only one kind of sin in the world. But when we accept materialism and greed and sexual deviancy and all these things, and all these things are supposed to be acceptable, and we're supposed to think it's okay, then people want that because that's their social gospel. Ours is what? That we are blind, dead enemies of God and that were it not for our Lord and Savior, we would be all lost. But when our Lord forgives us and pardons us, he pardons all sin. That his verdict upon us is a verdict of acquittal. And this pardon that we receive is what it is that is at the very heart of our gospel. Very different. So let's... Um, Let's look at the next one down. Um, well, the text from 2 Corinthians. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. He's talking here about the Jews, and he's talking about the fact that when they interpret the Scriptures, they do so through the lens, if you will, of the law only, that they are justified or made right with God by virtue of their obedience to the law. And Luther based, and Paul says, there's, what happens is that when you see, only see law, it becomes a veil over your eyes, and you can't see Christ. You don't, can't see him for the person that he is. Um, you know, you, you've seen the old stickers, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus is law. It should be WDJD, what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life for me. His righteousness has become mine. Jesus died for all my sins. Jesus raises me from the dead. Not my works, not my deeds, not what I do, not by imitating what he does. I've been poking myself here too much. But this is the veil of law. See, now what happens with the so-called enlightened youth out there 
is that all they see is law. And they say, what's the problem? I'm successful. I've got it together. And they're bright. And they are. That's where the money is. That's where the people are who can go out and work 10 hours a day and will go out and party for three hours and get up the next morning with five hours of sleep and they can go back at it and they're bright and they can live anywhere that they want to live and all those things. And they say, what's the problem? And we say, well, all your works are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And they say, that's all this. You can't convince me. So we've got a, there's a lot of work to be done in our world today because that is, the, the churches are empty. Uh, San Francisco is the most unchurched place in the whole country. Those churches are empty. Big, beautiful churches, empty. Okay, number two. Sin is what they call a correlative to salvation. You can't understand one without the other, right? Flesh gives birth to flesh, Jesus said, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son purifies us from all sin. Um, remember, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. You know, we know your teacher sent from God, blah, 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 blah. Jesus says, Flesh gives birth to flesh. There's no way that human flesh and blood can any way understand the kingdom of God. Um, all right, well, okay, number three. No one can understand God's judgment of man without first understanding what God's word says about sin. And this is tough. Former Concord says, the damage, this damage is unspeakable and cannot be discerned by reason, but only from God's word. You know, we have all these debates about the baptism of babies. What's the so-called argument for why babies don't need to be baptized? They don't sin, do they? They just eat and poop. People think, how could they be held accountable? There's no knowledge of their sin, right? We're going on the basis of human, what we see. The Apostle Paul says it a little bit better. He simply says, wherever sin is, there death reigns. Can a little baby die? All right, then believe what God says. Because that child is under the curse of sin and original sin means that that baby is under the curse that brings damnation. And it's really hard for us to swallow that whenever we see a child that maybe hasn't been baptized. But let me tell you, out of the grace of God, he gives us this gift that we can take a little baby and there we can pour water upon its head and say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit claims that child and removes the curse of death so that if we lose that child, guess what? How many mothers here will someday go to heaven and meet a child that they never saw grow up? This is going to be one of the reasons why it is I think we're going to find heaven is going to be one heck of a great place. Can you imagine the reunion that we are going to have in heaven? 
And this is the, shouldn't we be living in that joy? I mean, every day is kind of the day of resurrection. And that God and his son in Christ, in that union, Paul said, did you not know that those of us that were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That whereas Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too would walk in the newness of life. We're alive. We haven't, we've died already. And when that little baby is taken up to that water, it dies and is reborn. And God will give that child back to us in the resurrection. But if you don't believe what God's word says, you're going to say, no, we've got to wait for that child to make a decision. And they understood that the doctrine of original sin went straight after that problem. Because the minute that you say that a person has to make a decision before they can be, for Christ before they can become a Christian, you are saying that human beings have an inherent spiritual power that can enable them to make that decision, which means that the so-called corruption of our human nature is not total corruption. That means that we become co-participants with God. That means we actually go back to the garden and say actually part of what the devil was saying is true, that we too can become like God, for we can make decisions that are spiritually right decisions without the aid of the Holy Spirit at all. And they understood that there was a perfect connection between accepting, believing the doctrine of original sin and understanding God's grace. But also there are other things to be lost if we go into decision theology. I like this number three, and we'll, we'll try to be able to bring this. We'll stop right there. No one can understand God's judgment of man without first understanding what God's word says. But look at Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now this is, he's, he's speaking even of the Jews. We. But maybe also the people from Ephesus before they became Christians. But he's saying everybody was under this wrath. And then he goes on, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. I always imagine, imagine this. People are told in a revival service or whatever. Well, you, I, 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 I actually I love Billy Graham. I, I really did. I, had a lot, I owe a lot to, to Billy Graham. But Billy Graham was a decision theologian. And he wanted you to come forward to accept Christ. Now, there's a, there's a way of being able to say that, hopefully, so that in the end you can always say, even if you, quote, accepted Christ, it was the Holy Spirit that moved you to this so-called decision. And that it, it was all glorious to God. But decision theology, if you want to get a, a picture of this, imagine going up to a person who has died, a dead person who's laying there. 
and you say, would you like to get up? Hello, we were wondering whether or not you really wanted to be able to leave all your estate to the church. Your wife would like to know if she should, she should sell your boat. And Oli just lays there, and he doesn't say a word. Oli is not going to talk to you. He's dead. Oli is not going to make a decision. He's dead. Oli is not going to be a good guy. He's dead. That's exactly what it is that we are by nature. And if you ask a person to make a decision for Jesus, they're dead in their transgressions. They can't. That person has to be converted by the Holy Spirit. So um, th this is what Paul teaches. We have to believe the Bible. And when we believe, guess what? God chose you from before time. Before the world was created, he called you by name. And you're a Christian today, not because you were a good guy, not because you made a decision for Jesus. You are a Christian today because God, before time and eternity, called you by name. And you were brought about, you were created, and you were brought, you were recreated because the Word of God said so before time and eternity. Anybody feel badly about that? No. But let's go on. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I just, you know, it was a, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit like when you get onto the plane at the beginning of January and it's 30 below in Indiana and you get off in San Diego and it's 70 degrees and you say, I can't believe I'm here. But heaven is going to be a place where we are going to look at the face of God and we are going to sit there in heaven and try to comprehend everything that God has given to us and we're going to say, I can't believe that I'm here. I can't believe that this is true. I can't believe that this is heaven. I can't believe this is eternal life. I can't believe that my wife is here. <laughs> no. I can't believe that the worst sinner in the world. I can't wait to meet that thief on the cross. Right? And I can't wait to meet the Apostle Paul. And I can't wait to meet my grandfather. And I can't wait. And we all can't wait. But you know what? Heaven is going to be for us that place where God has set us even above the angels. Above the angels. Incomparable riches of his grace. And then go on. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. All decision theology. This is not from yourself. All decision theology. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by 
works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So when we get to heaven, we'll say something like this. You know, uh, I donated one of the pyramids uh, for Advent Lutheran Church. And God will say, well, that was me that motivated you to do that. I was the one who gave you the gifts to be able to do that. You remember how it is that all those funds that you have in the bank? Well, I was the one who actually made it possible for your business to succeed. And by the way, the air that you were breathing, I made that. Everything that we have to bring before God by way of good works, he's going to tell us when we get to heaven, he's going to show us that he was the cause through which all those things were done. I think all of you have a little bit of this, though. Whenever your kids succeed, do you notice how it is that you take credit for it? <laughs> and I think you should, to a certain extent. <laughs> we, want, we want to be able to bathe ourselves in, in their lives and their successes. And when we get to heaven, all that is good in this world has its origin in God, and he lets us become instruments of his glory by working those things through us. So if we don't have the doctrine of original sin as the backdrop, we saw these paintings by these, we were in the, a museum called the Legion of Honor. Has anybody ever been there? You take a Rembrandt or you take some of these Dutch painters and they had these dark, dark, dark backgrounds. And then they had these bright, bright, bright colors that came out of those dark, dark backgrounds. That was the genius of their time. When we get to heaven, we're going to see the dark, dark, darkness of our original sin and then the bright, bright, brightness of God's grace. And we're going to say, I can't believe it. Unbelievable. So, original sin. We'll continue on. The, uh, the troops are restless. They're eating eating in the back <laughs> joyfully. Let's close with a prayer. Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Help us to believe your word about our natures, about our original sin, and help us also to believe in your infinite, unbelievable grace given to us in, through, and by means of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to prepare this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.